Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Gabriela Torres, a professor of anthropology at Wheaton College whose work focuses on issues of gender-based violence, but has also been tackling issues of racism in the field and in academia head on. So we'll talk more about that later, but welcome Dr. Torres. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you and to have this opportunity to chat. Thanks, Gabby. Thank you for having me in the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. So before we dive into some of your fascinating research and social justice work, I'd love to talk about your role at Wheaton College as a professor of anthropology. Uh, When I was doing some research for this episode, I saw that you not only teach um, in your area of research, gender-based violence, but you also teach many other areas of anthropology, including Latin American cultures, economics and anthropology, medical anthropology, anthropological theory and methods and more. So I'm really curious to hear how you approach teaching and mentoring students, as well as your experience in this transition to online learning. So in the liberal arts colleges, most of us who work uh, in these contexts are sort of jack of all trades. So we, we tend to have pretty broad teaching profiles, which differ in some ways from what people tend to teach in, in R1s, you know, in research-based universities. I think what that does is that that gives you a different approach to mentoring, right? Because you have to mentor students who have varied interests, anything from actually pursuing anthropology as a career uh, to just using anthropological knowledge in other kinds of careers in business and healthcare that they might be uh, interested in. So, so that's, you know, the kinds of uh, curricula that we teach in are broad. And so our mentoring has to be broad. Um, and at Wheaton, in addition to the work that I do um, in the anthropology department, I also run our uh, Center for Collaborative Teaching and Learning. Um, and so I'm a co-director with two other colleagues for that. And so that, that has taken me to use anthropology not just uh, to teach undergraduate students, and our college is an undergraduate college, um, but to also um, help us think about pedagogy for faculty and staff. Definitely. And I think that it's um, 
having that much exposure to students has really probably helped you tailor your classes to kind of fit fit those needs, which I'm sure your students appreciate. <laughs> Uh, so how has this experience and this transition to online learning affected the way you're uh, teaching your classes? Um, have there been any surprises or maybe I think honestly some good ideas have come from it. I know teachers that have decided, oh, you know, guest lectures are really enhancing uh, the curriculum. So when we're back to regular classes, I still want to invite, even if it's virtual guest lecturers that are experts in the field. What have your experiences been? So as I said, the context in which I teach is particular, right? And so one of the things that, that we pride ourselves in is really engaging deeply with our students and making connections that are, are meaningful to them in their everyday lives. And so that obviously became rather stilted in sort of the tiny screens that we exist in. Um, and so how do we do that? So thinking about communities of inquiry and how do we build communities of inquiry? How do we ensure that students are continuing to be connected to each other, that they find meaningful relationships between other students in class? That used to happen sort of uh, just by the fact that you were walking somewhere together or by the fact that the professor went to the bathroom and you were sitting in the classroom all by yourself um, and, and you struck up a conversation. Now we have to, in some ways, orchestrate those kinds of connections between students and then also connections with them and ourselves. And so, so really rethinking what it means to connect to learning and, and actually connections are core to how we learn. Um, the content that anyone might uh, give out in a classroom doesn't actually uh, make itself into sustainable learning unless someone connects with it mm -hmm. at a personal level. And so trying to really purposefully build connections as a way to further learning. For instance, in the classes that I teach now, um, you know, students uh, engage through, you know, short recordings, they engage through answering really specific questions, they engage by doing certain kinds of interactive activities. And when we actually meet together, I mean, I, I always have a really hard time actually sitting and lecturing, right? So my classes are very much discussion based. And so we figured out ways to do it. But I have to tell you that the thing that I've been, that I'm going to carry from the online learning to when we go back to teaching in person, which in our college, we certainly will be doing that, um, is really paying attention to access, right? To universal design for learning, which in some ways being online made me more aware of the importance of that, um, of making the information that I presented to students accessible, accessible in multiple ways. And I, I think, you know, in some ways the crutch of the classroom uh, made me really slow in, in taking up universal accessibility to the materials and universal accessibility, uh, which is required by law. But um, I think, you know, it's, it's been something that's been hard to slowly adapt to, but I, I, I've been very purposeful in my online learning and I want to continue to do that. Um, that's, that's the one thing that I'm going to carry forward.
I think that's a great goal. And as, you know, an undergraduate student myself, I think there are times where, you know, work can get in the way or you need to go to the hospital or the medical center and you can't attend class. And, you know, it has been so nice to have these classes online. I can take a quiz, you know, whenever I need to. Uh, I think it will be hard for certain students that have full-time jobs that maybe take care of other family members to transition back into that. And I hope other teachers um, take take your lead and hope hopefully incorporate that continued accessibility for students that are in more complicated circumstances once we are back in person. Because it, it is harder, obviously, sometimes if you miss class, you do, you know, miss class, but there are ways to supplement it. There absolutely are. And I think, you know, the online space has made us be more creative with that. Definitely. I also really like to hear that you're having students submit recordings. I just did one of the, the, for the first time for one of my classes, and I thought it was really fun to see everyone's and just to talk and know that my professor was going to get to hear a bit of me rather than just my essay was, was a great thing. So I think that's definitely a great way to engage with your students. So switching subjects a little bit, um, I understand that in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movements and our rising social justice issues in our country, you took it upon yourself to change the way you and your colleagues were educating students and um, actually put together a workshop on how to be an anti-racist educator. Uh, Could you share more with me about this workshop and some of the uh, fruits of your labor? (laughs) Sure. Um, So we put together a workshop uh, that... Actually, it was an access point, right? And so, you know, I I think uh, those of us that are in anthropology sometimes have had a lot more uh, exposure to actually thinking about social justice issues. And we might have done some reading about social justice issues, but actually uh, in in a college or university, not all faculty have done that kind of reading in all disciplines, right? So the one thing that I wanted to sort of support my colleagues with as an anthropologist was to provide sort of entry ways. And the way that we thought about it is anti-racist work is really about iterative, both personal and systemic work. So it's about making changes in our own relationships and our own selves, but they're not changes that will ever stop, actually. You can't just all of a sudden become anti-racist and it's all mm-hmm. done, <laughs> yeah. right? It's actually, it's, it's, it's actually a, a practice. I almost think of it as meditation practice, right? To become anti-racist. It's a practice in which you keep working on it. Um, and so, you know, following that, uh, that metaphor, we came up with eight steps for reflection. And so thinking about um, reflecting on the systemic issues within colleges and universities, reflecting on how racism works in society, reflecting on the impact of racial trauma on your students and yourself, if you happen to be a faculty of color, you know, um, reflecting more broadly uh, in terms of How do you create an action plan for yourself? Because you can reflect all you want, but if you don't have a continued action plan for learning, then it's gonna really become stilted. And so we we just thought we could create a way for people to think about anti-racist work that um, did not start from 
the misinterpretation that people often have about anti-racist work, that it is uh, blaming, right? That it only is work that certain kind of people can engage in, actually. I think we all, whether we're persons of color or not, uh, can work on um, engaging with anti-racism work. And we all enter at different stages, but we still, in some ways, need to continue reflecting on ourselves, on our society, and on the systems within which we operate. I mean, I think Definitely. it's it's no surprise to you and no surprise to me um, as a Latina woman um, that uh, the systems of universities and colleges are not really designed with us in mind, mm -hmm. right? And it's, so- Racism is a structural that, problem. It's structural, absolutely. And so how do we, how do we use uh, culture as an analytical tool, right? How do we use culture as an analytical tool to look at the racism that's systemic, right? Um, and I think that's, that's something that anthropologists can bring to the table. And, you know, one of the most important parts of this is actually then taking it back upon ourselves and our discipline. And how is it that our discipline has also, um, been participant in colonial um, endeavors, uh, been uh, racist in the way that it includes or excludes persons, um, been hierarchical and exclusionary and citation practices. So, That's so a real certainly issue. that is that is uh, those, you know, citational politics are really important. Mm -hmm. And so continuing to think about citational politics in our discipline and, and, and the work of, of cite black women, which is primarily uh, anthrop anthropologists run, right? That work has really instructed me in, in thinking about the content in my own courses, but also in thinking about, you know, who has leadership within our association um, how can how can we engage students in our classes by foregrounding different kinds of scholars? What does it mean if we teach theory, not necessarily based on an idealized canon, but actually teach the ideas that we think um, apply to today, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I and and that's the approach that I take. Right. And I, I and I think, you know, I had this experience with one of my students where I said, oh, my goodness, your name, uh, your name is the same name of a, of a very well-known anthropologist. And she's like, what? I didn't know there was an anthropologist named Ashanti. I'm like, yes, of course, Ashanti Reese, you know, uh, here's her work. And she's like, oh, my God, what she's doing is really exactly something that I'm really interested in you know, uh, food security and food waste uh, for Black Americans is something that she was interested in. So being able to engage with, with the real interests of different kinds of students and classes and moving away from idealized notions of what the canon should be, I mean, I think that's, that's central to, to anti-racist work within our own discipline. Definitely. I think that's a very powerful idea. And you saying that made me really think about how I think anthropologists really will be on the forefront 
of the structural changes that need to happen in the wake of all of these social justice issues coming to light. They've been happening, of course, for years, but this, you know, real intense focus on them during the COVID-19 pandemic and during the Black Lives Matter movement, I really feel like anthropologists will be able to help shape the changes that need to come. And even just taking a class in anthropology can show you how human origins, human evolution, like how we really all can be united by culture and by our past and by answering questions, uh, you know, of the past and present. So I think, you know, I have the highest hope that we will be able to help shape, shape the future. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Yeah. Um, So you also partner with uh, the American Association of Anthropologists, which I also partner with as well. um, And you act as a member of their social justice and anti-racism advocacy and advisory program. So how have you been able to create change and engage with other anthropologists of color through that? So um, in our association, there's actually a number of uh, affinity sections, right? So um, a good example of this is the Association of Latino Latin American Anthropologists or the Association of Black Anthropologists or the Association uh, of Queer um, Anthro. And, And so the affinity groups within our association have always existed, right? Um, and uh, the the seat in which I in which I serve actually used to be called the minority seat, um, and it was recently changed to the anti racism and social justice seat, with the intention that um, we wouldn't be talking about who holds that seat as being necessarily a person of color, right? Before, when we were calling it the minority seat, the idea was that this is a person of color, right? Uh, now it's really about the responsibility for changing our, our, the way that we nominate individuals to hold leadership in our association, for changing um, where diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging fits. And I think in many ways, um, it hasn't always been at the forefront. And, and I don't just mean of our association, actually. I think in academe writ large, it hasn't always been at the forefront. So putting it first as something that, that we, everyone in the association has to look out for. So I've been doing that work. Um, and um, right now we're working on nominations in as part of the work in that committee with the executive um, committee. Um, the executive board of the the association. So that's that's the work that we're doing, and we're doing it, you know, piece by piece. Um, but it's it's not work that we ever do on our own. It's always work in which we invite anthropologists who might be in leadership roles, but who might also be anthropologists in the community who have area of expertise. And so that's the way that we've engaged different kinds of anthropologists, not just ones that are already in established leadership roles within the association. Uh, So working with the sections, but also working with people who have area expertise. That's great to hear. Um, So we are going to switch gears into talking about specifically your research. Although I think all of the the uh, social justice work that you're doing is amazing, and uh, we could talk about it 
all day. And I really applaud you for putting that at the forefront because I think we all really should be putting that at the forefront of our, our efforts, especially as we, you know, transition back into more quote normal times, <laughs> if, if we ever transition back to normal. Yeah. Um, so what inspired you to pursue a career in anthropology and specifically to choose your area of research? So my uh, interest in anthropology actually first began when I was actually in high school and I was actually interviewed by an anthropologist. Um, and I, I really had no idea what anthropology was, but I, I did notice that her questions seemed kind of odd to me. She kept asking me about what I thought and how did I understand something? What was my analysis of it? Kept thinking, oh my gosh, this is weird. Why does she care what I think? It gave me, it gave me an interest in anthropology as a way to engage with the knowledge that people who aren't academics have, right? And to engage with that knowledge in earnest, right? That the, the possibility that anthropology has to allow us to become co-creators of knowledge with other people. So that's really what sort of piqued my interest in anthropology. Um, but my area of specialization um, in, uh, so I'm a gender-based violence specialist. I guess that's how I might characterize myself or I'm actually really interested in gender-based violence and how it relates to the state. That, that, that's actually at the core of everything I do is I think in many ways states are structured in ways that enable certain forms of gender-based violence and disable other forms of gender-based violence. And I've always been interested in you know, which forms it enables and which forms it disables, right? And, and who does that privilege? And so I, I, I started getting this interest actually from my work in Guatemala. So I did uh, my beginning dissertation work was historical work looking at the impacts of the Guatemalan genocide and, and in particular the gender-based violence um, impacts of the Guatemalan genocide. Um, which are now featured in a film that was just nominated for the Golden Globes, um, wow. which is called La Llorona. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it. Uh, and so, so it, what's, what's featured in there is just the role that gender-based violence played in the Guatemalan genocide and, and how much that still haunts Guatemalan society. And that's sort of where I started in. And, and my work has meandered into really looking at um, sexual violence and intimacy and what kinds of similarities there are between that form, which is the most common form of sexual violence, right? So often we think sexual violence happens with strangers, but actually the most common form of sexual violence is with intimates, right? Um, and so starting to look at what are the similarities and differences of this phenomenon globally, uh, what can we understand about the relationship between this kind of violence and ideas about gender um, and, and notions of what a woman is and what a man is. And so that's, that's where my, my work has meandered into in terms of my area of specialty. Yeah, and it's but it's been a it's been a transition, right? Like you start somewhere and then and then your work meanders. Yeah, and well, and you find new questions to ask. And have you spent quite a bit of time um, in places 
where you do your research or are you collecting data and analyzing it back um, in your lab? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a collaborative researcher, so I actually work with a lot of colleagues yeah. <laughs> around the world, and so um, so I work. Actually, we had a meeting uh, just a couple weeks ago, and you know I had to use a world calculator because there's that we are all over the place, right? We're Ghana, uh, India, New Zealand, Denmark, and so I work collaboratively with colleagues all over. Um, my own specific uh, field research would be in Guatemala, and I have okay. spent a lot of time there. I mean, I, I was born there, um, but in addition, I've, I've spent a significant amount of time uh, doing field work there. Um, yeah, but other than that, I'm a collaborative researcher, and I've worked in with groups of gender-based violence researchers. So it's also really important to do it that way for that kind of emotionally heavy mm. research um, you know to have a real community of support as you're doing I, that work i i can imagine especially when something that i was speaking with another guest about is anytime your work is not on some ancient population it's with a real living person who has living ancestors who have emotions who have cultural backgrounds it adds another level of complexity and uh intensity to the work that you have to then process as an anthropologist but i'm glad that you had such fruitful collaborations and been able to you know develop that community uh, did growing up or being born in Guatemala, did that inspire you to then focus your research on Guatemala in particular? Yep. So, um, you know, uh, being Guatemalan, uh, my family uh, left Guatemala uh, because of the Civil War, because my parents were involved um, as attorneys and had a number of assassination attempts. And so we actually oh, wow. had to leave. My family had to leave. Um, and so always having um, a family member memory of what the Civil War was like while we were there. But then in addition, my parents kept going back to Guatemala and, and continuing to do advocacy. My mom um, was a lobbyist at the United Nations. My dad actually worked um, with the guerrillas and um, act actually in the negotiation of peace accords. So, so my family continued to be very involved and actually my dad ended his life in Guatemala. He returned to Guatemala. So, so being Guatemalan has absolutely shaped, you know, what I thought was of interest. Um, and I never shied away from actually leveraging my cultural knowledge as what used to be called an insider, right? I've never shied away from using that as, as part of my toolkit, right? What Diana Taylor calls the repertoire, <laughs> right? Because I, I think it allows, it allows some insight. Into, oh, definitely. A different um, lens of analysis. Yeah, a different lens of analysis. And that doesn't mean it's the only lens of mm -hmm. analysis that one can take, but it's certainly complementary to other lenses of analysis that are out there. Yeah, yep. absolutely. 
So specifically, we're going to talk about um, two, two of your books. One is a little older, and it was entitled uh, Marital Rape, Consent, Marriage, and Social Change in the Global Context. So could you tell me a bit more about the specific research and thought process that went into writing this book? And then also, was this published in, when it was, when was it this published? This was published in 2016. Okay. Yeah. So um, actually, uh, for that, we wanted to really, so the concept of marital rape, is a, it's a legal concept, right? It's not a cultural concept, exactly. It's a legal concept. And it's actually a legal concept that's not usually recognized by people who would uh, have a life experience of what we might characterize ethically from the outside as marital rape. Right. Um, and so what we wanted to do for that book, and we were lucky enough to get uh, Wintergren Foundation support to have a conference, to have uh, a conceptualization discussion between anthropologists and attorneys who had been working globally on the issue of marital rape, the criminalization of it. So we had a conference that brought anthropologists together and, and actually, at that point, there weren't a lot of anthropologists who were studying marital rape. Um, so we brought anthropologists and attorneys together to conceptualize how, how do we think about this idea, right? If people do not consider themselves as being raped, should we still say that they're raped, right? Because that's the legal category of it. What if that legal category doesn't exist in that in that cultural context? What if the person doesn't even see themselves as an individual exactly, right? What if they see themselves as part of a family group and actually the decision to marry is a family decision, right? The decision to give sexual access to a specific yeah. person is a family decision, not an individual decision. So. So the Wonder Grant, uh, grant allowed us to actually have some time to think through concepts in anthropology. Um, and it, this is something that we followed up with a more recent book that's called uh, Sexual Violence and Intimacy, which we just published in November of last year. And that book is a follow-up, sort of thinking more, not just um, about how the concept works in its relationship with the legal concept, but how the concept works in its relationship with a schema of health, public health and global health, right? So um, now it's pretty clear that sexual violence and intimacy has some pretty radical um, health impacts globally. And so, but then that's another way of conceptualizing, you know, a harm that isn't emically understood that way, right? So yeah. when people experience sexual violence and intimacy, they, they're not conceptualizing in their head the, the physical, uh, the mental health harms, right? They're managing their relationships, right? Their family relationships. So trying to interrogate in that book, the relationship of this notion of sexual violence with the lived experience of it. That's what we were trying to do with that book. 
I, I think I need to read that because the way you just explained that, that definitely sounds like it would be a, fa- a fascinating read. Um, I'll make sure to have everything um, linked in the description so any of our listeners can check out uh, your various publications and uh, books. Well, so, you. yeah. Um, and then also you can um, give me the specific link for that movie you were discussing about so we can make sure that, or at least the title so that yes. everyone can um, can look yes, it up. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, so I'm really ha- I'd be happy to see that. Yeah, I I love giving ways for people to connect outside of the show. Yeah. Sorry, what did you say? I wanted to add. I said the one thing I wanted to add with regards to uh, the work in the last book is that we were lucky enough for that book, for the second book, to get funding to have an international. Um, conference again to really get a sense of the concepts uh, through the support of the school for advanced research in New Mexico and I think you know both having the Wintergren and then uh, the school of advanced research funding really allowed us to to have a robust conceptualization framework and I think without these um, you know the books won't, wouldn't be as cohesive or, or teach us as much, right? I'm glad that you got that outside support and then you were able to have those conferences. Um, I think that's such a cool idea to incorporate that, like a conference and then the themes that come from that into your book. I think that's a really unique approach yes. to writing. So one of the pieces that I'm really excited to discuss with you because I, I read it and I just felt connected to, to everything you said was um, the feminist anthropology is teamwork, uh, which you published in 2019. And uh, you, I thought the ideas that you brought up about how single authorship can be looked at as this gold standard in academics when really collaborative authorship should be looked at that way um, to, as a way to detangle the patriarchy as well as bringing in new perspectives and dialogue to research. I think it's super insightful and important to talk about um, I had a guest on who I was discussing an article that I had written a research paper on. And I said, oh, this is very similar to themes you're discussing. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm the second author on that paper. And I felt so embarrassed because, of course, I remembered the first author's name. But I hadn't even noticed that this person who I knew quite a bit about and I was interviewing was a second author on this paper. And it made me realize how important it is to not just focus on that first author name, but to appreciate the collaborative effort of all of the people that are cited and or sometimes not cited on the paper. Yeah, that's hugely important. And, you know, and it, this, I think it's, it's one skill set to write something on your own. And I've certainly done some of that. Uh, but it's quite another to sort of meld your ideas with someone else and, and to have that back and forth. It's, I find it incredibly nourishing. And specifically, um, you were talking about uh, female anthropologists collaborating. Uh, Could you Mm -hmm. kind of give our listeners some more insight into what you were discussing in that piece? Yeah, so I've uh, collaborated with um, a couple of really amazing female anthropologists. And one of them is Lynn Kwiatkowski. Um, She's a Colorado. And um, we've been working together now for about 10 years. Uh, She does work on marital rape in Vietnam. Um, And, you know, uh, conversations with her over the years have really 
really allowed me to see how religion um, shapes the way that both states and individuals conceptualize both harm and the lack thereof, right, in relationships. And so I've learned a lot from working with her over the years. And more recently, I've been working with anthropologist Diana Shandy um, on our work in um, setting conduct um, expectations within the association. So. Uh, we've got a piece that's coming out this year that's called Rules Matter, which is about uh, the, um, the sexual assault and harassment policy that the association has and, and how that policy fits within the effort that associations uh, have made to sort of set standards of what um, academic conduct should be or academic conduct misconduct is for the purposes of ensuring that everyone has access to produce knowledge in science. I think that's one of the pieces that we often don't think about is that when someone is sexually harassed or abused in our discipline, really it is their knowledge that we often lose out on, right? You know, people leave the field because of those experiences. And, and they were producing relevant knowledge that we should have had access to. And so thinking about that part, that's, that's why associations need to be involved. And also because, you know, the, the way that students are brought into our discipline should be free from that harm. Right. Yeah. That should not be part of, of the experience of becoming an anthropologist. And sadly, over the years, it has been part of the experience. And so, so with Diana uh, and I, we, we've thought through, you know, we work together um, in the association in putting together the task force that came up with the policy and, and in drafting it in a collaborative way. So that's, that was collaborative with a larger group of feminists and then collaborative with one uh, in the drafting process. Uh, so the policy that we have is a collaborative object. And then um, when, when we write about that policy, the, the process, the analytical process is also collaborative. And so um, learning from each other, but also crafting a final product that is, can't be identifiable as one person's intellectual work right mm -hmm. that part where you do sort of like the mind meld right and i and and i think that collaborative practice right is a skill set right it requires you in some ways to suspend your ego right 100 <laughs> percent um even if only temporarily right mm -hmm. and um to position yourself regardless of whether or not you're able to successfully suspend your ego. So it's, it's been a really interesting practice for me. Um, I can imagine it has been, and it's really great that you champion the rewards of collaboration. And I think it is truly, truly the most important thing to producing, you know, some of the best and most thoughtful scientific research. I, I 
think it's just I, it's a common theme on the podcast. Can't talk about it enough. Collaboration is key. People, we are here, you know, just supporting others, listening to others' ideas, because even if it's something that you may not originally think, you know, is related or, ha- you know, has to do with the subject, it can end up being the most valuable insight. And so um, I'm honestly wishing I could take a class at Wheaton College so I could have one of your classes. You seem like, you know, I f- your students are very lucky. They have a very oh, uh, well-spoken thanks. professor. Yeah. Thank you, Gabby. That was it. Yeah. No, I, I love it. So I think they can feel that, right? Like, I think when, mm-hmm. when, when students can tell you love being with them, they can feel yeah. it. <laughs> That's, and it's so great. I mean, I, I have, you know, professor, I'm so, I always say like, I'm so lucky UCSB also has some really wonderful educators. Yes, it does. That, is, that have particularly shown me during this hard time of being away from campus um, that they still are going to give us the same quality of education, you know, online, which is not apparent in all departments. And I'm not necessarily to point fingers to anyone in specific teacher, but I think it's just so imperative and so great that they've stepped up to the challenge of, you know, giving us the best, best education they can while in these yeah. challenging circumstances i'm very lucky to attend this lovely institution yeah oh well thank you so much gabby for yeah. this great conversation i really appreciate it 